Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and more, all for free. And Sweet Process, focus on the work that matters. Document processes, procedures, and tasks all in one place so you can stay focused on growing your business. Daniel Alexander and Richard Loring, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you both here. Uh, Daniel Alexander is a co-founder and principal of Domus, uh, a real estate development company based in Atlanta, Georgia. And Richard Loring is the director of design and construction for Domos. At Domos, they view real estate a little bit differently. Their projects are unique co-living investment opportunities that breathe new life into underserved communities across many of our most vibrant cities. They are forward-thinking developers focused on building communities for the way people live in the 21st century. So co-living investment opportunities, breathing new life into underserved communities. I am super excited about having this conversation. I'm interested in what you're doing. Um, both from a business point of view and a, you know, an environmental, a, a, an urban um, uh, development point of view, I'm interested in both, and I want to learn more. 
Before we get too deep into this episode, let's say thank you to our platform sponsors, Arcat and Sweet Process. I'm hearing it more and more among the Entree Architect community. The workload is piling up. With project conditions changing and limited time to get things done, it's good to have information at your fingertips. RCAT.com provides architects, engineers, spec writers, and contractors with the most comprehensive libraries of building product content. And it's designed so you can access it quickly and efficiently. Even better, RCAT.com is free to use and requires no registration, no credit card, no email. So visit today at RCAT.com and access the information you need now. That's RCAT.com. A-R-C-A-T dot com. Let me ask you a question. Are you frustrated with how long it takes to get stuff done in your architecture firm? Or how chaotic and confusing things seem to get? Well, let me tell you about a much better way of getting work done. Let me tell you about an amazing new tool that will help you overcome the frustrating log jams in your architecture firm. Sweet process. It's a simple yet powerful tool that lets you create clear step-by-step -step instructions for every task in your architecture firm. From writing proposals, to executing client work, to responding to client requests. So everything gets done more easily and more reliably. Plus, you'll have a central place where everyone who works for you, your employees, your contractors, even virtual assistants, can access your procedures anytime from any device. The best way to understand how Sweet Process streamlines your work is to start using it. The company offers a 14-day free trial, but listeners to this podcast, the Entree Architect community, you can try Sweet Process for 28 days free, free of charge, 28 days. You don't even have to enter a credit card to get started. Just visit sweetprocess.com slash entrearchitect to start your free 28-day trial. That's sweetprocess.com slash entrearchitect. And let them know that you heard about them at the Entree Architect podcast. Sweetprocess.com slash entrearchitect. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. I want to learn more about each of you men. Uh, I want to start with Daniel. Can you share your origin story? What, what? inspired you to pursue your passion and when did you discover that passion uh you know i um I, I think i discovered the passion probably 25 or so years ago but i i just reflect on many many moments i'll give you one story specifically really quick and then i'll then i'll i'll, I'll come back up to the present day right. sounds good stories like this you know i i um i got out of college in 1996 at ucla i had a mentor in real estate that really got me started and that guy taught me a lot um, and finance a lot of my early deals. But what happened with me is that I had a passion for finding and locating blighted properties. Then I got excited about the design and I developed a, a technique that was both efficient, but also put out a pretty, pretty high-end product for that time in those areas. So it was you know, kind of redecorating the inner city, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't quite understand what I was doing at the time, just to be, be honest, I, I, in terms of affecting people's lives. But one day I go to uh, an open house that we were having of one of our, of our finished products. I just wanted to see if the broker had properly advertised it and things were going well. 
Um, I got there late, it was around 4.30, and I noticed the gate was chained closed. And she was standing out by the street and about to get in her car. I'm like, well, what, what's going on? I thought we were going till six, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, uh, this guy and his family came, the wife started crying, they loved the house. And when I went out off to do another check on another property, they came back and locked the gate so no one else could see the house. <laughs> <laughs> I like that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it worked. They, they wanted that house badly and they didn't want it to get away from them. And they had saw, they, they'd seen a few other houses that, that we had developed and we, and I was a small time guy at the time. I'd probably do maybe 10 or 15 houses a year and they missed out on one or two houses before and they wanted this home. And so, um, you know, when I reflect back to like, when did I discover my passion? There are a lot of moments like that along the way where you just really realize how much of an effect that you're having on people's lives in a good way. And uh, how much more then you, you know, for me at least, how much more can I do? I, lo I love that feeling. I love solving big problems. I know there's a shortage of attainable housing everywhere in the country. And um, it's just, you know, I, I want to see how much more I can do. So I, I reflect back to moments like that when you ask me, like, where did I discover my passion? It wasn't that day, right. but it was, there were moments like that all along. <laughs> so is your background in real estate or design or construction? What's, what's, your, what's your background? So I got my degree in in, um, in managerial economics at UCLA, but my background is just strictly real estate. I've been a real estate, what you would call a sponsor or a developer mm -hmm. uh, since I got out of school, starting off fairly small with, with just single families and, and small uh, um, you know units and things like that. And like a, a lot of you know burgeoning developers, start off small and just kind of work your way up. Uh, for for me, I really perfected working in the small space. So before I actually moved up the food chain a little bit, I, I was able to, to buy rehab and sell close to 300 to 350 worth of single family product. So I did a lot of that stuff before I started moving up into the multifamily space. So, and, I, and I did that from around 1996 to the early 2000s before I even bought my first apartment building. Um, I got into the multi-space around 2003, 2004-ish and I really started to concentrate in that area because I, I, I found a way to take what I learned from a design and space planning perspective, though I am not an architect, um, and, and implement some of those things within the, the renovations that I was doing at a lot of these large-scale blighted properties. And I saw the, the same kind of uptake. I would have tenants that loved living there. They took ownership of the place. I had higher retention. And I start implementing various services on these campuses and things like that. And to, you know, to just basically build that population, um, things like financial literacy, literacy in general, and just economic mobility programs that, that just help the, the community. And I, I found that I could help bigger groups of people much faster, um, you know, and just kind of scale it. And so uh, I started, I started to get into that space around early 2000s and around 2009, 2010, I formally opened a group specifically ded dedicated to transferring, you know, multifamily communities above 200 to 300 units at a time. Uh, and so I, I, I started that group, uh, found my way to the Southeast. The timing was great right after the, you know, the great recession. They were still in, in here in the Southeast. I'm based in Atlanta right now. Atlanta didn't really start to, you know, come out of that, you know, that downward trend until really 2011, whereas, you know, California was already coming out of it probably 2009, 2010. And so that allowed for the, you know, the perfect fertile ground in a great city like this 
to acquire several thousand units over a very short time frame and implement that game plan. And I was able to do that, able to get property management, asset management, construction and design all in one house, which I like to do to control the whole process and, um, and just take it from you know, inception all the way to a finished product. And, uh, and so we just really served a lot of people doing that. And, and so what attracted you to Atlanta? What, it, why, what brought you to Atlanta? Yeah, uh, you know, um, I look at real estate investing almost like fishing. You know, you always you always want to find a good secret fishing hole, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, a good spot where the fish are biting and everything like that. Um, but, you know, the conditions that you want to see in place, I mean, you want you want to be able to number one, I did at least I want to be able to serve people. So there has to be a need. This and this place is growing so fast. I mean, there are, I think, seven million people in this MSA now. It was it was seemed like three and a half, four million just a short time ago. So it's, it's, it's growing super fast. And with that type of growth, you see some of the things that we are aligned to kind of help do or fight against, which is like just gentrification, pushing people out. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the deliveries that you see, new construction is geared towards the higher end of the renter pool. Right. And you have this kind of missing middle group, you know, a lot of great collar workers and, you know, students and just new young professionals and things like that, that are just being kind of squeezed out. And so that is who we serve. And I saw the opportunity to serve those folks here, especially when you have all these great colleges in the downtown area and you got a bigger college not too far out. You got the biggest airport in the world here. You know, so there's a, there are a lot of companies here, a lot of Fortune 500 companies. It just, and the, and the state capital is, is Atlanta. So, I mean, these are things that I, I, I like to see just coming into a market, first of all. Um, second of all, you know, my parents are from here. My dad's from here at least. And, and uh, so that I, I have a, I have a few family connections here. I've been yeah. here. When I was I was here a few times when I was a kid. So there's a little bit of a connection that way too. Um, and we we invest in multiple markets. So though I was born in Los Angeles, right in downtown LA, actually, um, you know, I've always invested in two or three markets at a time, and I strategically pick these places based on you know kind of the indicators that I was talking to you about and a host of other things. Just kind of trying to read the tea leaves and see where things are going and how long I want to be in or out of a market and how deep I want to be into that market. And Atlanta surprised me. I mean, the growth that has happened here is strictly from when I entered the market in 2010. Um, I'd never thought that I'd be thousands of units into this market alone. And then also still investing in projects like the one we we're talking, we'll probably talk about today, which I'm sure Richard would love to talk about at some point. Sorry, Richard, I'm hawking up all the time here. But the one that you see in Hancock Park today, which is a super exciting, iconic project there. Right, but, um, you know, right behind me. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get there, I promise. But I mean, so, I mean, the metrics are there. The people need services. I mean, the, the rate of, of people being pushed out and not being served is so high here. So the, the, there's plenty of work that I like to do, which is my passion and kind of part of my origin story is wanting to serve people, wanting to provide, you know, tremendous amounts of attainable housing, you know, across the country in the greatest markets, but not just do it, you know, for the sake of, of providing attainable housing. I want to do it in a very, very, very masterful way with, with, with great people, award-winning people like the Richard Lawrence of the world that you see here and, 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 and the Lojas of the world and things like that, that can deliver high design, well thought out, intelligent, intelligently planned projects. Not, you know, not only just something that someone can afford in a nice area, but Let's see how much we can give, and so that—that's uh, you know—that's kind of part of my story in a nutshell. 
Yeah, I love it. I wanted to give some background on the company and how it how it started and where it came from. Okay. Um, and so I appreciate that, Daniel. Thank you. Um, Richard, why don't uh, you share your origin story? What inspired you to pursue your passion? Where did you start? How did you get into this world? And, uh, and then lead us to where we are today. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> good. All right, I like it. Way back when. Um, when, I, when, I was a, when I was a small kid, um, you know, my parents gave me a book about architecture. And there was just something... You know, it really struck a struck a chord, and I became very, I guess you could say, obsessed with architecture. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright was my hero. I have different heroes these days, but anyway, Frank Lloyd Wright was my hero, and this interest um, eventually took me to architecture school. You know, I was in architecture school at the University of Michigan. I uh, did my undergraduate work and my graduate work. Uh, at the University of Michigan, uh, uh, you know, being in architecture school also kept me out of Vietnam, which was very important to me at the time. <laughs> uh-huh. So it's a dual purpose there. Um, when I finished architecture school, I worked uh, in the profession, uh, you know, in the classical sense. I worked in the profession for about four or five years. And then I kind of started this, this drift, I guess you might say, into design build, which of course, you know, took me into the construction world. Um, and I also love construction. I, I love to see buildings being put together, not just on a macro scale, but on a micro scale. I enjoy watching tradespeople do what they do uh, and, and do it with skill. So, uh, you know, I did that for decades. Um, uh, and then I finally, in the early aughts, moved into uh, development uh, in the housing sector. Um, like Daniel, I've always been, you know, for reasons I'm not quite sure I understand, always very interested in housing. Uh, you know, a lot of my favorite architecture, you know, would, would be housing projects or houses or sometimes public, you know, facilities too, but um, real emphasis on housing. And so when I got into development, I, um, you know, I was very, very focused on multifamily housing. And uh, that's how Daniel and I met uh, back in, I think, 05 or something. We're not quite sure when we met. Um, but Daniel uh, was interested in, in the kinds of projects I was doing and decided to invest in a couple of them. And, um, you know, we formed a, uh, you know, business relationship and a, and a friendship that's, you know, that's lasted all that all that time, and and a couple of years ago, when Daniel and Derek were forming Domus, uh, Daniel called me up and asked me if I would, you know, help them and do some consulting work for them. And uh, uh, I said yes, and you know, one thing led to another, <laughs> as, as it usually does. And um, here here we are today, uh, you know, trying to envision, you know, n- new relatively new forms of, of uh, housing, uh, you know, that, that take into account, you know, not only reducing the cost of housing uh, or bringing it in below market, at least, but also um, our approach really is design centric. You know, we really are focused on how do people live? Uh, what, what can we do from a design standpoint and construction standpoint that improves quality of life? for the people that are going to be living in our buildings 
And I think there's a, a real commitment on the part of Domus um, to do that. Um, one of the other things I just mentioned, and then, then we can kind of move on, is that, and Daniel already mentioned it, you know, there's, there's a, a social mission aspect to uh, what we do. And one of the commitments that we, we made uh, on the Rossmore project in particular is that there would be uh, no involuntary displacement of residents that were already in this old building. And that's a, that's a commitment that we undertook. It's not a commitment that people undertake lightly. There's a lot of moving parts to, to accomplishing that. Um, but I can say with uh, enormous pride that, uh, you know, Domus has, has followed through in that commitment. Um, not a single resident in this building is being displaced uh, it, it, other than voluntarily. And, and when they are displaced, they're, they're either going to be uh, given cash for keys, you know, buy out of their lease, or they'll be temporarily relocated while we do the renovation. And then afterwards, they can come back into the building, uh, basically the same rent level <laughs> as they left. Um, so, you know, we're very proud of that. Yeah, that's, that's uh, inspiring. It's, it's very surprising to hear that, you know, from a developer, right? Typically the developers come in, they, mm -hmm. you know, Im improve quote unquote the area or the building. Yeah. Uh, and then it becomes so expensive that the people who are living in that area can't mm -hmm. live there anymore. Um, well, there's, there's, Mark, there's a secret sauce. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're significantly including in, increasing the density of the property. So yeah, you know, that's, that's key to this, you know, without, the ability, without the ability to increase the density, this is a much harder needle to thread. Right. You know, I wanted, um, I wanted, go ahead, Daniel. Oh, sorry, Mother Mark. I want, I want to add to something and give Richard a little bit of credit, a lot of credit, all the, all, all the credit for, <laughs> for something else. But Richard said that was not a, an easy undertaking, but we made the commitment and he says that with pride. He, 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 he is completely accurate in saying that. And we did accomplish that. And it is, it is a point of pride. But when you set out to do something like that, and then suddenly a pandemic breaks out, right? <laughs> right. So you have a plan, right? Okay, here's what we're gonna do. <laughs> Ready, go. And then it's like, oh no, what's going on? You know, yeah. pandemic. Yeah. And then on top of all that, you're in the middle of social unrest about, you know, like just legacy you know, racial issues in our country yeah. and, and they're just boiling to the surface, right? And you're dealing with all that. Um, you know, you really question your plans and, and, what, and, uh, and, and what you're setting out to do. We didn't, but typically people do. To Richard's credit, what we did is he brought to us a, an idea of giving rent forgiveness during all of this. So, um, you know, you, you have, you know, you have a business plan that's being tested by all these factors and there are residents who are probably scared for their life from being, you know, from this health crisis. And you have somebody on our team, which I'm glad we did this saying, can we give everybody free rent for 90 days? No excuses, no payback, no documents, basically just if they say they need it, can we give it to them? And so that that's the kind of team that we're on. And, I, and I'm, I'm just grateful. And I'm, Again, I want to give Richard credit for even bringing that to us, and we were able to accomplish it as well. So, yeah, that's really impressive, and that come that that comes very much from the culture that you've built. That that right, and 
that's not just Richard, although Richard, I'm sure, was a big piece of that, but, yeah, but the culture that gave him the freedom right. to, to, to make that suggestion and, and know that it would be received in a way that it could possibly happen also says a lot about the company. Yeah, agreed. Um, so it's, so let, let's talk a little bit about the model because the listeners may not know what we're talking about, right? So you're talking about sort of building out these, these existing buildings. Um, it's called co-living, right? That's the focus that you, that you have. Can you explain either of you what co-living is and what, where that model come from? How, was that an existing model that you worked with or was that inspired by something else? Is that something unique and innovative? Um, I'll talk a little bit briefly about it, but I'd love, I'd love hearing Richard's perspective on it from design and construction perspective. But I mean, co-living is nothing new, but it is, it is, you know, the phrase is new, you know, it's so, so, you know, co-living is what people have always done. They've always taken in borders for rooms and things like that. I mean, it's, it's very prominent in, in Asia and all parts of the world where you, you have hyper density going on, where people are just urbanization is at a different level that we, than we're seeing here in the United States. But now we're getting there. You see places like California, where in New York and now in Atlanta and Austin, Texas, just places where rents are skyrocketing. And you have people that are you know, uh, young professionals or they, they may work at, manage the Verizon store, be a school teacher or a firefighter, and they can't, you know, they make under $40,000. They can't afford to live within, you know, five to 10 miles of, of the places where they work. And so this model works very well for, for that swath of people. And, it, and it, that age range is from 19 to, you know, 50, you know, and that's kind of what we get. But um, for us, it hit our radar when my partner, Derek Parker, we, we, Derek and I met, you know, roughly six or seven years ago, brought it to my attention. Uh, you know, we were doing similar things. We have similar programming on our sites. And we, and we noticed that some of our larger floor plans were already being roommated. And we, we didn't know that. So you have a three bedroom unit and there's all three different people in there and there are issues associated with that you know one person moves out now there's a delinquency because two people didn't prepare to budget to have to pay for the third person's rent or he took the couch or the tv or the cable or the water there were these issues that were going on when it was done unprofessionally um, and so you know we started seeking out professional groups that could come in and set up programming so that we could control that, take out those friction points and make, make that model work better. And so, and we also understood that it, the reason why people were doing that was for economics mainly. But then, it, then once, once it became more professionalized, then there was a social aspect to it as well. You could have instant friends, you know, if you're doing co-living, you came to a, a new town, you decide to co-live with three or four or five other people, you got two or three of those roommates that you might really like and you got instant buddies and you got, you know, instant, you know, recommendations for restaurants and places to work and all these things. And you also had it at a, at a discount, typically located in a, in a walkable, you know, high walkable, highly amenitized area. And so that's kind of how it came about and came onto our radar. Then we started to put the kind of the business model together to go, okay, co-living as a unit typology, meaning, you know, if you have a hundred unit building, let's just say for example, and you had 10% co-living, you know, 20%, you know, one bedrooms or studios, you know, twos and threes and so on and so forth. So as a unit typology, it really works and helps make an entire kind of campus, multifamily campus, have a high attainable, you know, or affordable, similarly affordable component to it. That's the origin of it. And then you start to perfect that origin. Well, how do we, how do we specifically design our programming to lift that renter up or, you know, or, and make their experience better? 
what do they need? Well, how can we bring services in to them so that, you know, they, they since the units are furnished, they won't have any furnishings. It's, you know, they may or may not want to cook. They may want their delivery handled differently. They may want different services for their pets. They want, they may want community activities done differently. And so as you start to build on that it, and layer on that, it, 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 it turns into something that's reminiscent of like a kind of like a boutique hotel with a with highly amenitized boutique hotel with very personalized servicing and people just tend to love it. Um, so that's from a, from a, you know, like a, a sponsorship property management perspective, that's kind of how it came about and how we see it from a design perspective. It gets even more interesting. Um, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Richard talk about that a little bit. Well, I, you know, Daniel mentioned already boutique hotels and to me that's a, <laughs> That's a very interesting uh, reference because uh, in, on a lot of levels, um, first level uh, is that uh, your question about the history of co-living, um, you know, you don't have to go that far back in our history or, you know, basically the history of uh, a lot of parts of the world to get to a time where uh, it was absolutely normal for people to live in boarding houses and to live in hotels. That's where they lived. Uh, they didn't have individual houses on their little plot of land. And, uh, you know, apartment buildings were not, uh, you know, the only option. Uh, you know, there were boarding houses. Uh, and, and, you know, in fact, if you go back far enough, it was ubiquitous. I mean, that's basically, that's what there was. Those, those are your choices. Boarding houses or you live with family, right? That's co-living. <laughs> you know, so it's been around, it's been around for a while. Um, you know, admittedly, it fell out of favor, um, and there was a real emphasis, for sure, in the United States on you know single family. Everybody wanted their single family home on their little plot in the suburbs, and you know, um, we kind of got what we uh, what we asked for, I guess. And now, we're, it, now we're rethinking that. <laughs> did it disappear because of the societal changes where? Uh -huh. um, you know, people moved out to the suburbs or did it change? Or in addition to that, because clearly that was a big piece of it. Um, was there, were there also zoning issues that, that made it more difficult to have co-living exist because it was sort of an informal way of living. It wasn't formalized like, like it is today. Mark, I think I'll go with the societal, uh, uh, factors, societal issues. Um, one thing that people, some people realize, but more people probably need to understand it is that, you know, the creation of the suburbs, at least in our country, was uh, was intentional. Right. It was intentional, and it was it was something that was encouraged by the uh, the government, not just the federal government, but state and local governments. And unfortunately, I think it's also of interest. It, it was a way to uh, continue. Uh, segregating people um, it was it was a very successful policy <laughs> we we are still a very segregated um, nation because of that so um you know there were a lot of i i'll go with the societal pressures that's that's where i think it started um uh, but now there's there's pressures in the opposite direction people don't want to be uh, they want to be engaged they don't want to be you know hermetically sealed they don't want to be you know, in a neighborhood hanging out with just people that are exactly like them in terms of background. Um, and then there's also, you know, you, you ask anybody, particularly the demographic we're serving, people are alienated, you know, and, and they want 
more social connection. They want more of a social network. And co-living, you know, at least the way we're doing it, provides a platform for that social interaction. And, and I think that's also an important part. I mean, we, we kind of focus a little bit on affordability and all the wonderful amenities and that stuff's all great, right? Affordability is great. The amenities are great. But the, the other aspect, you know, the third leg, I guess, on that stool is the social aspect, being able to create new circles of friends, new, new societies for yourself to exist in. Right. So um, I think all those things are, are fascinating. And, and I think it's what gives the co-living movement um, legs, if you will. How does how does the business model work? You started talking about it earlier. How do you, how do you make it work for the developer and for the investors, uh, and for the resident? I'll let Daniel go after that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it it you know, it's a balance. I mean, clearly, investors that are that are involved in this, from a philanthropic perspective, we want them to be to have a social you know. Um, just a social compass. Let's just put it that way. You have to want to be able to help out to yeah. some degree. You know, I mean that 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 needs to be front and center. Um, secondly, the returns need to be meaningful, um, and these retu the returns that you can get from a project like this are on par with with traditional multifamily deliveries. It, you just don't experience the same amount of displacement. I mean, that building that you see there behind Richard, if that was a traditional multifamily building with just ones, twos, and threes. I pretty much guarantee you that someone making $40,000 can't live there. That's true. And so because, um, you know, the, the density that, that we're creating and the shared living, you know, we don't have to build three kitchens or five kitchens. We can build one kitchen and have four people share it. And it, it, it'll be a kitchen that's probably you would typically find in a five or $10,000 a month apartment because it'll, you know, it'll be oversized and oversized appliances and, and just high end, you know, chef type kitchen appliances and things like that. So, so you, not only do you get more, you have to share, but you get more is, is you know, I guess the theme, but this, yes, the living space that you have, your private living quarters are smaller. You know, you'll have a, a private bedroom. That's roughly, what do you say, Richard, 300 square feet, somewhere around there. Uh, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that it's, it's essentially, it's a suite. I mean, that's, that's another thing to mention is that, you know, generally speaking, Mark, um, the you know the bedroom that's yours includes an ensuite bathroom, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and that's that's where you come up with the uh, with the square footage. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, your your personal bedroom is from three hundred three three to four hundred square feet ensuite bathroom, furniture designed specifically for that space, so you can you know pretty much live and work out of the space. But if you have to venture off into other uh, share spaces, you know, the programming of those spaces supports your life, whether it's work or just you want some leisure to go out and read a book, or you, you can, you know, migrate into bigger spaces where they're planned so that you can have more social interaction. So it allows you to kind of, you know, kind of float in and out of, of social interactions to the degree that you want to while having your own privacy at a, at a rate that you're paying for specific amounts of space. Um, so it's very experiential, which is a pretty big hallmark of the generation that really is suited for this type of living anyways. You both mentioned design when you started talking about the development projects. How important is design to Domos? Um, Daniel, you want to start? Yeah, I want to start, but I know you want to jump in. <laughs> I mean, 
it is, I mean, it is key. You know, you, you, let's, let's just be clear. We, we don't need to, to hire the absolute best designer in, in the country <laughs> to do these projects, but we want that group and we feel like we have that group at the table. Um, we, you know, like I said before, we, you know, the key to this is, is, is to have inspired spaces that everybody would have pride living in, whether that be an attainable level or whether that be at the top level of, of cost for to, to live in a place like this, you want people to have pride of ownership, pride of, of living in this space. And so that's, that's key for me. I know it's key for Richard. I, don't, I, I know that's what gets him up in the morning to be involved in iconic projects like this that serve the community. And the more that the community can embrace something like this, and you, you just, you don't see a lot of projects like this being made around the city, probably in the state, just, just Google it. You'll quickly, you'll quickly see that. Um, that is what makes it special. This, we want this to be an asset to the community. We want this to be something that the, that the city can point to and say, look, look at that as an example uh, of how design should be, of how people should be treated that were living there before, people that should be treated who now get, have the opportunity to live there afterwards. And so it, it's just, it's a, it's, it, it's a package of things to me, but design being one major part of it. I'll, go, I'll let you go, Richard. Yeah, uh, you know, when, uh... I mean, Daniel and I met because of uh, our interest in, in design. Um, you know, Daniel talked about how he became interested in design. And I talked about how I became interested in architecture. And for me, it's um, fundamental. It, it, I've, I've spent my entire career uh, only involving myself in projects that I think had architectural merit. And I... You know, I've turned down a lot of opportunities in my life and a lot of projects uh, simply based on the fact that I didn't think they had design merit. So I'm very serious about <laughs> about architecture, very serious. Um, and that's one of the reasons I'm so happy um, working with Domus because they've, uh, they also are interested in, in great architecture and they've allowed me to, you know, Pursue, pursue my interest and my passion for it. And, and again, I, you know, the Rossmore building, I don't know if, Mark, have you seen the images, the rendering images? I've, I've looked through the website, so I probably have seen them, but I don't know specifically okay. which one you're talking we, about. We need to send you the images then because it's, it's a remarkable building, uh, really remarkable. And Loha has done an amazing job and they've, they've had to factor in, a half dozen issues, any of which would be more than enough to put on a developer's plate and an architect's plate. And they've, they've managed to keep all six of these balls in the air and, um, you know, produce something that's extraordinarily responsive uh, to the historic building, you know, the old building that we're, that we're working with, but is also clearly uh, a superlative expression of modern architecture, no question about that. And we've also been very careful to adopt the uh, Secretary of Interior's guidelines for historic preservation. So, you know, we're looking at all of the communities out there. We're looking at tenant groups, tenant right groups, and saying, we've got something for you. You know, we have a solution that even you, you folks uh, can be comfortable with. We're doing the same with the uh, folks in the preservation community. Same thing with the folks in the architectural community. Uh, so we're, we're trying to do a project that, you know, kind of 
rings all the bells. We're not, we're never satisfied with just ringing one or two of the bells. Got to ring them all. <laughs> yeah. It really, it really seems that you, you check all the boxes, right? All so boxes. You're, you're taking care of the developer, you're taking care of the investors, you're taking care of the, the, the residents and you're, you're, you know, you're doing great development, but you're also focused on design and that design really seems like it's an integral part of the success of it. It's, it's, it's an, it's a mandatory component for it to work, right? Because it, 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 like Daniel said, it, it um, establishes that pride of place, that that's where they live. And the design is a big piece of that. It, the design also brings value to the properties and to the neighborhood and inspires other developers to look at that and say, we need to focus on design as well. And so the neighborhood starts to all focus on that and the whole neighborhood starts to improve because of your focus on design. So it's an integrated part of the success of the whole entire uh, business model. Yeah, this is certainly what we hope for. <laughs> yeah. Very inspiring. Um, what's the future? What's the future look like for Domos? What's your plan in the next three to five years? Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, coming out of what we just recently are st still involved in <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and going forward, uh, I think that you know, everyone would have to reflect how life can be and how life will be, how life should be. Right. Clearly, a lot of the things that we've seen over the last year are going to be are going to be gone, and it will be memories, and life will, will reach some level of normalcy at, at some point. Um, but for Domos, you know, obviously, service is still going to be at the center of that. We want to, we we want to be involved in iconic projects like this across America's greatest cities, serving. The most people that we that we can possibly serve, and so that's going to be our key focus always. Um, and so I, 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 we we've already located other projects like that in outside cities, outside of Los Angeles, and eyeballing other markets, you know, as, as we speak. And so I would I would guess that if you if we, if you check back in with us <laughs> from time to time, there'll be some new uh, project that we're equally excited about, similar to Rosmore, in some great market around the country that we'll be that we'll be talking about. It's exciting. Richard, what's your thought on the future? Uh, well, you know, what, one thing that, you know, Daniel just kind of touched on it a little bit, and that's, <laughs> and that's the, um, you know, that's the fact that all of us are, uh, have been affected in a variety of ways by COVID, you know, by what's, by what's going on in the larger society. And one of the things I find myself pointing out is, you know, people, because people are always saying, well, oh my God, COVID, you know, co-living in the age of COVID, are you guys nuts? You know, and I go, I go, look, I go, look, what do you, what do you think the average household looks like in the United States? Well, it's, it's between four and five people. I got news for you. Four and five people. All living together. <laughs> and they're all living together. <laughs> so that's what it looks like to me, you know, and at least on Rossmore, our model, that's exactly what it is. It's four and five bedroom co-living units. That's our model. So I like to point out to people that, you know, there's nothing wrong with our model, even during COVID. Um, yeah. Everybody's pretty upset and people are questioning everything. But um, this too shall pass, like everything else yes, in our past, uh, you know, we'll move on at some point. And, um, and, and co-living is going to be there, you know, as we move on and move up, you know, co-living will be there. So I'm, I'm, very enthusiastic about the future. And by the way, you know, Mark, there's a lot of different co-living models out there too. With that, that should be said. You know, the Rossmore represents one type 
you know, we, we have these four or five bedroom units. Um, we're looking at a project now in Atlanta where, you know, it's much larger. I mean, they aren't people really living in the same unit, but it's, it is, uh, it's studios, you know, large number of studios sharing a, uh, some central facilities, you know, large kind of commercial kitchens, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's another model out there for co-living. So there's, there's a lot of different ways to, you know, to approach, uh, co-living and there's, so there's no one flavor per se. There's a lot of different flavors. Yeah. Very you interesting. Can see in the, I'm sorry, Mark, to cut you off. Just want to add one little thing yeah, to your comment. Is that one thing that you can see in the future, though, in terms of affordability, is that co-living typically will always be a discount to a studio. Yeah. Okay. So if you fast forward 10 years from now to the Rosmore, Rosmore building in that neighborhood and where rents will be, that will still be an attainable mm -hmm. unit to allow you to live in that area at that time. You know, yeah. Just, you yeah. Know, it, it's not. I wouldn't call it future-proof affordability. But, it, you know, the rents will rise in co-living as they do across the portfolio, but it will build, it will still allow an entry point into a neighborhood like that. And that's, that's very important to us. Yeah, that, that's, um, you know, it's fundamental to the economic model. In other words, we, we assume, as, as does every other co-living operator, that they, they have to offer units that are discounted to, you know, market rate studio units. That, that's, you got to do it. And, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, yeah. Mark, one other thing I wanted to mention is our Rossmore project is a mix. It's not yeah. pure co-living. 40% of the units are co-living units. 60% of the units are going to be traditional um, one-bedroom apartments. Um, I think we got a smattering of studios and maybe one or two two-bedrooms, but 60% uh, of the units are going to be you know, traditional apartments. So it, it is a blended yeah. Right. Yeah, and I'm sure that also helps build the model that mm -hmm. that, that brings in additional revenue uh, because of those higher rate um, units. Mm -hmm. sure. Very interesting, very inspiring. Um, I'm I'm glad that I brought you on the show here because it's uh it's something that I think that that our community of small firm architects need to hear that mm -hmm. this exists out there and and that. There should be more of it, right? Your your models are showing the way it can be done. Uh, like I said, it's checking all the boxes. Everybody's happy with these units, right? Um, the developers happy, the investors are happy, the, the residents are happy, the the cities are happy, right? They they are models of how development can be done successfully. And so I appreciate you both for pursuing it and for doing it and to being being the leaders of this to show that development can be done in a responsible way. Uh, in many, many different formats. Um, before we finalize our conversation here, I wanted to ask you a question about uh, architects and small firm architects. Who is the main uh, listeners here today? What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow, Daniel? I would say I, I'm, a, I'm an ideal guy at, at my core. I like creation. And I would say creative solutions to, to today's problems and being willing to, I guess, for lack of a better word, donate your time, not being afraid to just give time and, and serve in, in anticipation of creating solutions and work and then, then working with groups sort of like ours or other groups to test those solutions. 
early on in projects and not make it about compensation, but make it about learning and creating. I think if, you know, small groups having the ability to, to be nimble and, and just try out new things have a pretty big advantage over larger kind of legacy groups that have set a way of doing things, in my opinion. And so I, I love to hear new ideas, new, new inspiring creative ways to get things done. And I think small firms, they have the, they have the, they have the upper hand in that regard, from my perspective. Love to hear what Richard has to say about that. Richard, what? I certainly don't disagree at all with what Daniel said, but I would have things to add to that, of course. Okay. Um, you know, to me, look, I, I've worked with uh, some of the most talented architects in the United States over, over the years, over my career, some of the most talented. And the, the ones that I think that that I think are going to be most successful on a go forward um, are architects that are number one listening very carefully to their clients. Okay, not all architects do that. All right, um, they have their own agendas, some of them. Uh, but but the the best of them, and again, my opinion only, the best of them are listening very very carefully to what the client is saying. Right, and then also. And I can't stress this enough. Um, architects need to, you know, they need to try to act in a financially responsible way vis-a-vis -vis their client. Vis-a-vis -vis their client. You know, when a client tells you they have a budget of X, you got to respect that, you know. And if you don't respect it, you're making your professional path a lot harder. <laughs> you know, a lot harder. Um, particularly if you're a firm that sees itself as, as wanting to work with developers. Developers just aren't going to put up with a, an architectural firm of any size that doesn't, that doesn't respect the developer's goal, which is to have a financially successful project. So I, I would say those are the two things. Listen to your clients, respect their financial constraints. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for that. Do you do you does Domos partner with independent architects or is everything in house? Oh no, we partner. So yeah. if, if uh, a listener is interested in learning more about Domos and and getting involved in the work that you're doing, how do they reach out to you and who should they reach out to? They could reach out to Daniel or to me. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely think that. Um, you know, again, I, I love Richard is a very process driven person and I love I love hearing it and, and it's it's great. Um, and so you heard process and a strong, you know, advocation for process. And then you heard from me creativity ideas and things like that, you know, so but I have my guardrails right there, <laughs> you know, keeping us in line. But I mean, yeah, I please reach out to us. I, I you know, I like I said, I love to hear creative, innovative solutions to problems. I love that. We got to figure out a way to get construction costs down. This is something that will that makes both Richard and I happy without compromising quality or design and things like that. So I mean, it's uh, you know, there's there are a lot of things that, that we can talk about, but I would love to have people contact me directly uh, or Richard. It's uh, you can contact uh, me at uh, you know, it's Richard at Domus with an S DomusCoLiving.com and Daniel is Daniel at domuscoliving.com. So if there are yep. listeners out there that want to 
continue conversation or initiate a conversation with us, you have our uh, email addresses. That'll yep. be great. We, we will yep. put both of those email addresses in the show notes. Um, the website is domoscoliving.com. We will have the link to that as well. Yeah. They can go look and see all the great work that you're doing over there. So domoscoliving.com. Daniel Alexander and Richard Loring, very, very inspiring conversation. I appreciate you both for the work that you're doing and for joining me here today at Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you. Hope to be back soon one day. Thanks. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Links to the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is proud to be a partner with the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. We are curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And check out Entree Architect Academy membership. We have ready-to-edit business resources, live monthly training for architects, a supportive architect community, and Simple Systems, our new business system program developed for you, small firm architects. It's all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership. Come join me and hundreds of Entree Architect peers at entrearchitect.com slash join. That's entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. Be well, my friends. Be healthy, happy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. 
It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.